There are some people who are sick or who are traveling、um, who are not able to join us physically, but I know who are watching, so hello. And、um, I, we hope that、uh, everyone can get better and、um, be able to rejoin us again soon. We've been going through the seven deadly sins, and we're at the final one of the series、uh, Pride and Wrath. Just want to show a little cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes,、um, very well known and very loved. And he says, I can't get this model airplane to look right. These directions are impossible. And then, arg! The next thing you know, hit by anti aircraft guns. And he says, Your planes do seem to run into those. Don't they?、Um, it's interesting watching Micah play because he's almost three and he's got this train set that he likes to play with. But the problem is, if, if it happens to be quite an elaborate train track system, and if one part breaks down and he can't fix it in, the, in like three seconds or less, he gets quite frustrated. And the next thing you know, it goes from playing train track to Dinosaur, and he just destroys the whole thing because he's so upset that he can't fix the little part that's broken. And we're trying to teach him patience. We're trying to teach him that that's not the best way to deal with your frustration.、Um, but as a you know, two and a half year old whose world is mostly outside of his control, let's just say he has a lot of mood swings as a result. And even though I'm 30 years older than Micah, there are times when I too, when I'm frustrated, just want to throw my hands up in the air and cry. And I think as we wrap up these series, it's important to remember that having these feelings of frustration and anger and everything else we've talked about, you know,、um, lust and, and、um, sloth and、uh, envy. That these feelings in and of themselves are not the problem. Because it's very normal to have these feelings and it's healthy to feel these different emotions. But what we have been talking about is when we, when we let these emotions control us rather than us being able to manage them and deal with them in a healthy way that allows us to then build a character,、um, that God desires us to build. And so, It's not about having these feelings of anger and, and, and all these other things, but it's how we consistently respond. It's how we choose to make decisions and deal with those emotions in such a way that honors God, that honors others and ourselves. And、uh, so identifying when they start to kind of creep into our hearts and minds is very important, and it's actually the first step. For example, let's take pride. You know, pride can be very healthy,、uh, a, a very healthy sense of accomplishment for a job well done,、um, a sense of belonging to a group, a sense of admiration for someone close to you, being proud of your loved ones and their achievements.、Um, there's a healthy place for pride. But that pride can become unhealthy when it all of a sudden displaces God with the self、um, and with that pride. And so, for example,、uh, Psalm 10, 4 to 6 says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies and he says to himself, Nothing will ever shake me. He swears, No one will ever do me harm. 
So the danger of pride is that the thought is so consumed with self and so consumed with um, what needs to, you know, um, the thoughts of of their accomplishments or or what they're trying to accomplish or whatever it is that that is the source of their pride, and so then there is no room for God, and it blinds them to the needs and the feelings of others. A proud person no longer depends or submits to God and thinks that he or she is in control. There's a book by Dorothy and Bruce um, Hayward called God's Heart's Call to Inner Peace. And in that workbook, um, they're actually both counselors. They go through a series of topics that often take root in our heart. Things like pride, fear, bitterness, envy, etc. And this is what they um, have in their workbook about pride. It says, God's heart desire for me is to learn his ways in scripture. But the prideful heart says, I don't want to be told what to do. God's heart desires for me uh, is to make me free. But the proud heart says, I am free enough. God's heart desire for me is to open my heart to him. But the prideful heart says, I keep my heart covered. God's heart desires for me to release all buried secrets that bind. But the prideful heart says, my secrets are nobody's business. God's heart desire is for me to deal with difficult problems, but the prideful heart says, denies that there are any problems. God's heart desire for me is to be strong in him, but the prideful heart says, I don't admit to any weaknesses. You know, pride doesn't have to come in the form of hubris and someone who's overconfident. It can actually come in the form of insecurities. Um, someone who thinks they're not good enough or beating themselves up for their mistakes and always wanting to be in control, that is also a form of pride. It's the other side of the coin. For when we devalue ourselves, we are also replacing God's views with our own or God's views with someone else's opinions of us. Pride destroys relationships because it prevents us from truly trusting God and others and thus preventing us from making intimate connections with him and with others. One of the most kind of infamous portrayals of pride is found in the book of Daniel. His name was Nebuchadnezzar II. Nebuchadnezzar II ruled um, Babylon from 605 to 562 BC. He was born in 634 BC. And as a young man, he conquered many nations, one of which was the nation of Israel. Not only was he mighty in terms of his military and political um, conquests, but he also sponsored the arts and religions and constructions, uh, such as the Seven Wonders of the World, Hanging Gardens, and the Ishtar Gates. Has anyone ever seen the Ishtar Gates? Um, sometimes they tour you know, in the museums um, around. And um, the Ishtar Gates were discovered from 1902 to 1914. Archaeologists discovered the 13.7 meters of the original found, uh, foundation of the Ishtar Gate and the walls of the city. And they say that the walls of the city were so thick that they would have chariot races on top of the walls. So two chariots side by side, dashing around the wall. Um, so you can imagine very thick constructions. The bricks of the walls were faced with bright blue and bore the inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, um, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in that dream, he has this vision of the future. And God actually uses um, a, um, a man named Daniel, one of a young, young men from Israel, to interpret the dream for him. And what the dream actually t- 
foretold was that after Babylon, there would be another kingdom and another and another. And so Nebuchadnezzar was told, you are the head of gold, but after you will come others. But when we get to Daniel 3, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar didn't really like the idea of his kingdom not lasting forever. Um, and in fact, in history, from, from various records, we find that about 595 BC, there was a little conspiracy in his kingdom to actually dethrone Nebuchadnezzar. And so you can imagine that such a, um, you know, tremor of tumult would make Nebuchadnezzar very insecure. And so what did he do? He decides, I'm going to build a statue 27 meters high and 2.7 meters wide. I'm going to set it in the plain Dura, right outside of the city of Babylon. And he decides, I'm going to gather all the leaders of my empire from all the different provinces, make them come here to the plain of Dura. And I'm going to play some musical instruments. And when the music sounds, everyone must worship this image. And of course, it was a political move to show I am in control. You must worship me and you must obey me. And so it was a test of loyalty. As well as, I'm sure, um, his desire to say, there will be no other kingdom after me. My kingdom will last forever. My legacy will last forever. So he makes the statue of gold from head to toe instead of what he, has, he had seen in vision before. Um, archaeologists have found 10 kilometers southeast of Babylon a dried brick mound of 14 meters square, um, which may have been the base for such a statue. But at any rate, he asks everyone to come and worship um, this image. And you know, we might not, let me go back to the picture, we might not build ourselves golden statues 27 meters high and force everyone to worship it. But we still do like to create projections of ourselves that are bigger than life and that seem to glitter more than perhaps truly meets the eye. We like to have everyone think that we've got it all together, that we are successful and knowledgeable and faithful and humble and everything that people admire, right? And we like to not only project this image of ourselves, but when others project that image, we are drawn to it. We may not worship it, but we certainly as a society um, place a high value on people who have power and position and wealth and good looks, right? We put them on a pedestal and we talk about them. They're in the news and we aspire to be like them. And so, yes, there might not be a 27-meter golden statue in Flinders Street, but as a society, we place so much value on those um, symbols of greatness rather than on character, on humility, on faithfulness, on God-centeredness, on service, on love. So not only do we have this false image that we have to maintain, which is very tiring, but we also have this false um, system that we're always trying to fit into, this false um, system that we're always paying homage to, whether we like it or not. We, as a people, applaud those who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, who can make it on their own, and we don't like looking weak. Right? We hate to admit failure. We hate to admit vulnerability. And so then, even though we might not have that 27-meter high statue like Nebuchadnezzar, 
that shows how insecure we really are. People can tell when we when we when we over exaggerate our accomplishments or when we um, you know never show our vulnerable side. We are actually putting up those images and asking people to admire us and like us and think of us as someone uh, great or someone who um, is more able than we truly may be. And oftentimes what happens is that when we derive our value of ourselves based on the opinions of others, we inevitably are going to get hurt because not everyone is going to think you're wonderful. Not everyone is going to be impressed by your accomplishments. There's always going to be someone who's done one more thing than you have, right? I remember when I was at at uni, as you know, um, I was at Princeton with my sister. She was one year above me. And, you know, every year there were opportunities to apply for scholarships. And um, I remember my sister had applied for a scholarship and she had gotten it. And the following year I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll apply because it was a great scholarship if you won. Not only, I think it was like $50,000 towards your tuition, but in addition you would be part of this um, group that would get special talks, you know, from special speakers around the world and you would get invited, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember I applied and... um, they would only choose one from the entire uni to represent the university. And I remember the person who was, you know, selecting asked me to come in. And so I was like, oh, this is a good sign, right? Maybe I've been selected. And I walked in and she said to me, yeah, we like your application, but there are a few things that we really need you to fix on it. Um, and, and back then, I really wanted to, I wanted to be a writer. One of the things that I wanted to do was write a book. And I had talked about that in the application and the person said to me, you know, you say you want to be a good writer, so you really need to reflect good writing. So you need to edit. And like she had a list of things on there that she wanted me to edit. And then on top of that, it was one of those um, applications that you fill in. And she said, the other thing is your handwriting is really bad. Um, <laughs> and I do admit I do have bad handwriting. And she said, um, can you write it neater? And she said, you know what? Let me just show you what we expect. And then she whipped out last year's applicant and she said this person's look at her handwriting look at what you know look at her application you know and she actually got it you know she was a winner and i'm like yes that's my sister i know <laughs> and um it was just i remember you know leaving leaving that office like i mean yes i was selected but in such a way that i felt so low <laughs> that um you know i had to rewrite everything as neatly as i could and you know edit the things that they had asked me to edit and, and it went out but i actually didn't end up getting the scholarship but i just remember at that point i didn't know that at that point you know it's supposed to be good news that i actually was selected out of the university but i remember walking home back to the dormitory feeling so small right Especially being compared to my older sister, who, which has had been happening my whole life, and um, it's amazing how our opinions of ourselves, right, can can be so influenced by a word here, a sentence there, a look there, right? And to that person might not be significant, but to us it is. And because we value ourselves so much based on others' views of us, either a compliment here will make us feel like the top of the world, or um, a criticism, constructive or not, um, makes us feel like dirt. Right? And it's this up and down, right? Both sides of the spectrum that really can create this sense of pride, um, inferior, you know, complex, or this sense of arrogance. But either way, 
not the right picture of ourselves and not the right pictures of others because what we then do is compare ourselves with others. And so, well, how come I can do this, but my coworker, you know, can't pull their weight, so then I have to do their part. And, you know, we, we start devaluing other people as well based on their performance. And it's so common in our society. And what happens when that pride gets wounded, oftentimes, is that it leads to wrath. So that's how pride and wrath are connected. And we see that happen with Nebuchadnezzar. Because when he asks for this worship, I mean, this is just a one artist's depiction, but someone stands out like a sore thumb, three sore thumbs. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three young Jewish men, probably in their mid-20s, who said, you know what? Despite the pressure of everyone else doing this, and despite the risk to our own lives, we will not pay homage to this image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And of course, um, some people were very um, officious enough to point that out to the king. Hey, these three guys are not worshiping you. And it says in verse 13, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of the gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I think that's the ultimate pride when you think that you can control the destiny of others. And even though we might not be so dramatic because we might not have that much power, but we also make decisions um, and, and have attitudes on a daily basis where we think that we have control of other people. Um, and we try to control other people. Whether it's by threats or rewards or whatever it is, manipulation, we do try to control other people. And of course, when you can't get your way, it leads to that anger. We find out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond in this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is not very happy with that response. He gets furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude towards him changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them in, and these men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Again, our wrath might not lead to the same quite dramatic deaths um, that we see portrayed here, but our anger can poison others, our relationship in such a way that deep injuries are made. And sometimes relationships are broken and very difficult to then piece back together. Uh, 
um, anger in the face of injustice or abuse can be a very positive impetus for change. But misdirected anger or even justified anger that is sustained and unresolved can be hotter than a furnace seven times hot. It can lead to violence. It can lead to vengeance. Or it might come out in passive-aggressive ways, right? Just leaking out in steam pieces here and there. And so then you're behind a tram on a road and you're just so angry, right? Or a slow driver or, you know, little things set you off, whether it's um, someone just saying something that's not even a big deal, but you blow up, right? Or you get very sarcastic. Um, or perhaps just a stranger that's a bit rude on the train and it just makes you so angry um, that the person has been rude to you. Um, or even at work, you know, the boss says something or makes you stay a little bit extra and you're fuming inside, right? When, when, when our issues of anger have not been resolved, they leak out. Our anger leaks out. Our passive aggressiveness leaks out. And often towards people who have nothing to do with the cause of it. Um, and like I said before, it can really poison our relationships and drive people that we care about the most away from us. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So notice how it doesn't, it is not sinful to be angry. It's very normal to be angry. But the caution is, in your anger, don't sin. Because the way that you respond and react to that anger could be healthy in the way that you release it in a safe place. Um, you know, let the steam go. It's like the steam engines that they used to build back then, right? When you can release that pressure in a, in a, in a controlled way, it's great. It can actually be a powerful, uh, powerful force for movement, right? But then when you, um, when they would lose control or when something was wrong and the thing would blow up and then you would have this catastrophe. And so Ephesians is saying, be angry. But in your anger, be careful that the response to that anger doesn't give the devil a foothold. And I like that image of a foothold. It's like in your anger, you've left the door, you know, a bit ajar, and the devil can sneak his foot in, and then next thing you know, he's getting in, right? And because and he can come in by making you bitter. You know, something happened, and you're justifiably angry, right? Something has been taken from you that was yours, and you're angry, and that's fine. But the next thing you know, you're bitter. And then your bitterness makes you plot ways to revenge that person. Um, and the next thing you know, you are, yeah, passively, aggressively angry towards everybody. And then because of someone, something that someone has done to you once, you are now a porcupine. Or what's an equivalent to a porcupine in Australia? An echidna, right? Do they, do they shoot quills too? Okay, porcupines actually shoot quills at you when, when they're, when they get in that defensive mode and they shoot. And, and they can hurt when those quills come flying towards you. And so we become these little porcupines that, you know, because someone has hurt us once, but I don't want anyone to hurt me anymore. So anyone who comes near me, you know, don't get near me. And all these innocent victims lie around you. Um, they just wanted to say hello, you know. Um, because, because we have, in our anger, given place to bitterness, given place to defensiveness, given place to pride, given place to X, Y, Z. So how do we let the anger go? How do we let the pride go in a healthy way? First, we must acknowledge that 
there is anger and that there is pride, that, that there is something in our hearts and minds that hasn't been healed, that hasn't been resolved. And I think that's sometimes the hardest step, just to confess to God and, and identify, yes, God, I have this problem. Yes, I have this anger. You know, it's easy to say, oh, I'm fine. Um, they have anger issues, but I'm all right. But to actually examine ourselves and, and pray and ask God to show us that we do have um, areas in our hearts and minds that, that definitely need healing. One of the things that you can do, and I recommend this you know, in your time of prayer, is not just pray about the things that are on your mind consciously, things that you want to get done, you know, things for other people, but to actually ask God, God, is there, ask this regularly, every day, ask God, is there, is there someone in my heart that I have bitterness towards? Is there someone that I'm actually angry at? <laughs> Can you show me? And, and ask that question in prayer. And you'd be surprised how a name will pop into your head, right? Or a memory will pop into your head. And it's not a coincidence. God is trying to show you, hey, there's a reason why that name or that person or that memory, that picture um, is now in your head because that's something perhaps that you need healing from. And to ask God, God, okay, I have this, I have this desire to brag about my accomplishments. You know, where did that begin? Can you show me, God, what, when that began in my life? How old was I when I began to do that? You know, what, what caused that? What started that? And um, I've done this in prayer where God has shown me. Um, I shared with you about my whole sister and thing. And when I was doing premarital counseling with Roy, um, Bruce and Dorothy Hayward, um, who wrote the workbook, they actually were physically, we were blessed to physically be with them, and they led us through the counseling. And they had us ask God that question of, you know, how old was I when I started feeling this inferiority complex? You know, for a long time, I thought I was stupid. For a long time, I thought I just wasn't good enough, and that I was an imposter for being at Princeton, and everybody else was smart, but that I had somehow snuck in there, you know? And um, I asked God, okay, when, when did I start feeling that way? When did that all begin? How old was I? And God impressed upon my mind that it was when I was seven. So then um, to ask, okay, well, what happened when I was seven? And then a memory came to my mind of when I was seven. And, you know, it was quite quite a small thing, really. Um, my mom had asked me to do this errand. And I, in my seven-year-old mind, I thought I did it very well. But it, it turned out that I had misunderstood the whole direction. <laughs> and my mom used to love telling that story because she thought it was like a cute story of you know, my childhood. But I remember um, hearing that, hearing my mom tell that story and feeling quite embarrassed that I had messed up and that I didn't get it right. And meanwhile, all of my, all of the stories about my sister's childhood was like about how she was three and went to buy tofu from the nearby grocery and came back with the exact change, you know? And so like just, you know, nobody had told me you're stupid. No one, and my parents are very proud of me. They've always treated us, you know, with love and equality. But in my own mind as a little girl, I just compared those two stories and I just concluded to myself and of course, I'm sure Satan, you know, delighted in the fact that I believed that suggestion of his, that perhaps I wasn't good enough and that perhaps I didn't measure up. And so it was realizing that, and I didn't realize it for like 25 years. And so when I finally realized that through prayer, it was great to be able to identify, oh, actually, that's kind of 
the beginning, but there's many, many, many decisions I've made as a result of that in my adulthood and the attitude I have that's actually been impacted by that. That actually is a form of insecurity or pride. And, you know, as a result, I'm always trying to work hard to show that I can do it. And, you know, it just led to a whole slew of things. And so first, I think going to prayer and asking God to show us the subconscious and hidden things, the painful things, or perhaps the wrong things that other people have told us. Perhaps we've been told you're better than other people because of where you're from or the family you belong to or um, the country that you're in and that, you know, somehow you deserve more. You know, those, and to really ask God, are those things true? Um, are these assumptions true? Are these values true? And so the first step really is to let God tell us the truth and to identify the lies that we have believed over time. I think secondly, we must, in that once we have identified that source of pride or wrath or bitterness, um, is to then deal with it by what might seem hard. (laughs) Let me explain. Um, Let's take bitterness as an example. Let's say somebody has done something that really hurts you something that has really, really deeply wounded you. How do you deal with that? Um, someone, a counselor, also told us this. The counselor said, yeah, you've, you know, you've been abused or something, something terrible has happened. You've been really hurt. They said, it's time to take out that anger. Okay? So the person said, imagine taking in your hand a few good, solid pieces of nail. And they said, take that piece of nail take all your anger, grab a hammer, and they said, hammer in that nail on the hands of Jesus. They said, with each pound, take out all your anger. You know, God, why did you let this happen to me? Why did that person do that to me? He said, take it all out. And he said, nail that, nail that piece in hard. He said, nail it good. And as you are hammering Jesus to the cross for what has happened to you, Look at the face of Jesus turning to you and saying, I forgive you, for you don't know what you're doing. And as you realize that your anger and your bitterness actually killed Jesus, but that Jesus willingly took that on because he knows that you've been in pain and that you want vengeance, that's why he died in the place. And as you realize that, and as you're broken in realizing that your anger and bitterness actually killed Jesus as well, um, and that he also died for those who hurt you. He paid for their sins of hurting you. And in that place of brokenness to be able to then release our anger um, and release our bitterness because it's been paid, it's been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And it's a hard image to picture because we don't like to think of doing something so violent, especially against Jesus. But try that exercise, um, that mental exercise of actually letting go of the feelings that we have. Or maybe you can physically go out and like, I don't know, hit something, not a person, but like an object. But, you know, Actually, letting letting that steam out, right, in that safe environment, um, in that safe place. This is what James says. 
God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Oops, sorry, one more slide. Um, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In other words, you know, you don't have to put on all the masks and pretend you're okay and that everything's all right. It's okay to, in front of God, take your mask off and say, I am an anger ball, <laughs> and this is what I'm angry about. And instead of just smiling and, and just praying to God as if you love him, actually tell him you're angry. And I, and I love that about the Bible. When you read the Bible, the real characters, they didn't put on a King Jamesian attitude when they prayed and just said nice flowery sentences. If you read the book of Psalms, um, the, the writer is often angry at God and says things like, hey, where are you? And why are you letting this happen? How come the wicked prosper and I'm suffering? And they complain a lot. There's a lot of whinging going on in the book of Psalms. And the, in the book of Job, um, when all those terrible calamities happen to Job, he doesn't just say, oh, your will be done. Hallelujah. And smile. If you, if you read the book of Job, he gets quite angry at God. At one point, do you know that he calls God Satan? Satan is the Hebrew word enemy. So he says, God, why are you acting like, and he says, Satan, right? That's pretty, them are fighting words, right? He's, they, he doesn't mince, he doesn't hide, doesn't mask how he's truly feeling. He knows that in front of God, he can actually release his steam in a healthy way. But he also knows that as he takes out his anger and his frustration and his bitterness to God, he also knows that he's ultimately unworthy to take it out on God. And he, and through that process, he actually finds healing and, um, in the end, restitution. And so first we identify, then we go through that process of releasing in a safe way. And then there are some other practical ways. You can get into the practice of thanking God and thanking other people for their help and contribution. Um, it's, it's a really good way to combat pride. The more we thank others and acknowledge and affirm others for their part in our lives, the more we realize that we have nothing to be especially proud of. We are where we are because of the blessings and the circumstances and everything that everyone else is doing. Also, you can surround yourself with wise people who can gently tell you when you are off course. Right? It's nice to have that person that you love and trust who can tell you, you're being a bit unreasonable <laughs> and who can tell you, I think you need to calm down. Um, and it's a blessing to have that person. And perhaps we as a church community um, in a safe place can be, um, can be someone and be a community where you can feel safe to say, hey, and I just want to check, am I, is my thinking off course? Is my attitude off course? There's also the practical value of serving others. When we are in service, we gain better perspective of our true value in Christ, the true values of other people, and the reality of the world we live in. It's amazing how traveling somewhere can really open up your mind. Uh, meeting new people um, can open up your mind. And so if we actually do more service, right? If we actually try to get to know somebody who's different from us, as we go through that process of um, hearing different opinions and hearing different perspectives, um, 
we can gain a better, healthier, balanced self, sense of self. This is the example of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the Bible teaches that when we are looking out for the interests of others, when we are other-focused, when we are God-focused, that it's in that place of servanthood that actually God lifts us up. Whereas the world says the opposite. The world says, look out for yourself. And it's in your self-interest that you are exalted. But God has the opposite worldview. When the three young Jewish men were thrown into the fire furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar expected them to burn up and expected them to, you know, that would be the end of their story and his power and his position would be secure. But something amazing happens. The king um, goes in and he says, look, he approaches and he says, sorry, let me just read this from here. He leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. It's incredible because the only thing that burns when they go into that fiery furnace, it's not their turban, it's not, there is not, not even a strand of their hair, but only the ropes that bound them got burnt off in that fire. And in that fire, even though it was hot, even though it was risky, even though it was uncomfortable and difficult, God walked with them. And that's the reality. It's uncomfortable for us to deal, in, deal with our pride, to deal with our anger, to deal with the pain and all the emotions. Especially, I find, as Australians, we don't like dealing with our emotions. We just want to shove it in and just go play footy. Or, you know, just we don't want to talk about it, right? But in that discomfort, in that fire, in that trial, in that circumstance of dealing with our past, dealing with ourselves, dealing with our sinfulness and going to God, 
the only thing that will really burn away are the ropes that bound us, the things that enslave us, the things that keep us back from truly being free. So I want to challenge you and I want to invite you. If you want to experience God, you want Him to come and walk with you, then you have to be willing to go into the fire. It's risky, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult. But as we accept that God is able to deliver us from the things that bind us, as we accept that God is more powerful than the things that we struggle with, and we walk in, right? Or we get thrown in. Um, Not only will God be there with His presence, but He will be there with His power to deliver us and to get others then to, to say at the end, wow, your God is God because I can see the change in your life. I can see the miracle that you can come through something so negative and yet not let it turn you bitter, not let it change who you are. You've gone through something such, you know, that how can you have accomplished all that you've accomplished and yet still be so humble, right? Other people will look at us and be able to say Jesus because we will defy the natural sequence of how everybody else is and how the world is. But my prayer for all of us is that as we allow God to purify us and as we take our problems to God, as we take those things um, in prayer and get closer to Him, that we will experience His amazing love and grace and power that can change us and give us freedom from the things that bind us. So may that prayer be accomplished. And I'm going to just ask Galen and Esther to hand these out to everyone. From Dorothy and Bruce Hayward's book, there's a little worksheet that has a list of forms of pride. And you'll be amazed um, at how so many things um, and thoughts are actually a form of pride that perhaps you didn't realize before. And so you don't have to do this right now, but take it home and in a prayerful space, identify a form of pride that perhaps you have not dealt with yet. And there's a suggested prayer at the bottom. It's only a suggested prayer to to start you off in your journey of allowing God to transform you. And so thank you, Esther. I'm going to ask the hymn team to come back up. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing um, one of my favorite songs. It's called More Love to Thee, My Lord. And the idea is that as we come closer to God, right, Uh, we can experience that power that gives us freedom. So I invite the hymn team up, and if you could all stand.